0: It's not like if your child comes to you with a problem, the healthy, positive relationship is the one where the parent always has the answer. It's that your kid knows they can come to you and you'll sit next to them while they cry. Or you'll say, can I get you a glass of water? You know, like that your child just knows you're there for the happy, for the sad, for the angry, for the whole gamut of feelings,
1: and you're not going anywhere. Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber. Today, we are having a powerful and timely conversation on trauma and resilience, a topic I know is weighing heavily on parents' minds as this pandemic continues to stretch on, and we wonder more and more, are the kids going to be okay? To bring some perspective and nuance to this topic, I've invited Dr. Eliza Pressman to the podcast. Eliza is a developmental psychologist, parent educator, assistant clinical professor, and co-founder of Mount Sinai Parenting Center. She's also the host of the popular Raising Good Humans podcast. In addition to her PhD in developmental psychology, Eliza also received a master's in risk, resilience, and prevention. I can't think of a better guide for this topic. In today's conversation, Elisa shares helpful ways to think about trauma and resilience, especially related to children's experiences during this pandemic, and offers advice and research on the best inoculations, if you will, to protect our children from chronic stress responses and to aid the process of developing resiliency. Lots of food for thought in this one. And now here's my conversation on trauma and resiliency with Elisa Pressman. Hello, Elisa, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you so much for having me. We were just discussing this is a relevant conversation for this moment in time, but also, unfortunately, for many months to come. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And before we get into it, I would love if you could just take a few minutes and tell us a little bit more about, you know, your work in the world and maybe what your big picture why is for the work that you do. Well, my big picture
0: why is an easier one to answer, which is just that when I fell in love with developmental psychology and just thinking about how human beings develop over time, I wondered why so much of the research is just not part of our everyday knowledge base, just how helpful it can be to have information about developing humans, to just help us be parents and caregivers um, and teachers. And it seemed like the conversation is typically surrounding what's wrong with kids or what's wrong with parents and nobody stepping in or participating in the conversations about what's going right or how to support families where they are. And that was kind of my hope. Um, So that was where I, I, and I also, I got pregnant with my first child after I had already been in graduate school for a bit of time. And so I also found it really fascinating how much information or misinformation is out there from just well meaninged advice givers, and from family to playgrounds to whatever. And I just thought it would be really nice to be able to help families sort through what is evidence-based and what's just someone's opinion, which is not less valuable, because some people want an opinion from someone they trust and feel like is almost like a mentor, parent, or caregiver. And that's totally fine. Just sometimes it can be couched in, this is, the, this is the only right way. And I wanted to be available to open up that discussion as well.
1: Very cool. And so tell us a little bit about the harder part of that question then, <laughs> the, the day-to-day work that you do.
0: So because I'm a developmental psychologist, which is kind of a really bizarre little branch of the field of psychology, my role is much more education. and research so part of my job is i have a private practice um where i have mom groups and parent groups and private sessions with parents like anything that you know might come up to support either um a parents or caregiver's journey in a, an event or a diagnosis or an experience or it's just they're like i can't get my kid to sleep and i'm really tired so it's a range of things and sometimes uh, it's about a community of support. So I have groups that start when they're the caregivers have babies, and they go all the way until I think my oldest group has seventh or eighth graders. And they just kind of stay together and meet monthly, and it's it's really incredible. And they don't need a lot of them have grown out of having me there, and I often sit back and <laughs> I hear them answering their own questions, and I feel so joyful. It's really awesome. Um, And then I'm the co-founding director of the Mount Sinai Parenting Center, and that is at Mount Sinai in New York. But our mission is really to make sure that in the healthcare setting that has access to so many families, no matter what their socioeconomic status is, no matter what is happening for them, physicians in hospitals and nurses and social workers typically are going to see, you know, 99% of births are in the hospital. So there's just such an audience there. And so we founded the Parenting Center really to make sure that all of the child development stuff that wasn't related to physical health, or at least didn't seem related, didn't seem directly related, the social, emotional, cognitive stuff was also part of the physician and healthcare provider training. To be able to support families who don't have the luxury of like a mom group or to go to their parenting expert, um, and we created programs that are just as luck would have it all online, so they're available no matter what the world what's going on in the world. And so we created a resident training for their behavior and development rotation, and that's at 122 resident programs at hospitals across the country and just different kinds of programs and waiting rooms and um, areas in healthcare settings where parents have time because they're waiting a lot and they are hopefully getting more support from it. So I teach the physicians as well. And what else do I do? Yeah, that's it. And I have a (laughs) podcast. That's my fun side project of sharing all of this stuff in a, in a, you know, a little bit less personal setting, but I have so many wonderful colleagues that I wanted to highlight.
1: That's awesome. I love the concept behind the parenting center too. I mean, that feels like there's just such a need there for, yeah, for physicians to better understand the whole child. I I was recently asked to speak at Grand Rounds for um, a group of medical students in Michigan because they wanted to just better understand differently wired kids and I was so excited to get that opportunity because having that deeper understanding that goes, as you said, beyond the physical or the medical piece is critical.
0: It is. And I, you know, I was so shocked because when I first started teaching, I was just told to teach the behavior and development rotation. And I said, what's the curriculum? <laughs> and they were like, whatever you want. And I, I, I couldn't believe just because I my training is in developmental psych. And so I didn't have exposure to the medical field. And I was so confused because I just assumed that everything you learn about children would be part of the training for physicians. And I was so surprised that it's not and it's not part of medical school at all. And so the residents really are and and many of them don't have kids because so they don't even call on their own experiences they're just kind of winning it which is so unfair to them mm-hmm. and i felt this like i was just thinking but wait there isn't like a things you have to know when you're you know things to look for or any messaging for parents or families and it was just so surprising so um, that's why it is wonderful even that you got to do a grand rounds for med students just because sometimes it's such a siloed field, the field of children in general, and so for families who are in, either they're in between getting a diagnosis or even knowing that there could be something going on, or they're new parents and they they need support, the physicians don't have that support either. So it's very hard to communicate, and so it has been a really eye opening, incredible experience, and the physicians really want to know. They're so curious and fascinated too. They just, it's just not part of their training. So there's a lot of handing off and it can't feel good for a parent to feel like if you ask a question to your pediatrician, there's a handing off to another expert. Like that almost feels like that's so daunting.
1: Yeah, and uh, so I could go off on a whole other tangent, Um, just about same with educators, right? teachers yeah. often are not trained in the nuances of the kids that they spend every day with but we'll shelve that for another conversation but you're totally right it is very analogous like that I have the same feelings about that yeah yes but today we want to talk about trauma and on the flip side of that resilience and i would love if we could start even with a definition of what trauma is i think this is something we're all hearing more about. And, you know, I certainly have read articles about what's happening as a result of this pandemic and these unusual circumstances for our kids, and many of them are experiencing trauma. I'm not sure I know exactly what that means. Can you put it into context for us?
0: Yeah. And actually, I'm glad you asked in that way, because I think something is happening where everyone's calling the pandemic a trauma for all children like a trauma experience. And it's actually trauma refers to, you know, a violent or dangerous or threatening event that happens to a kid that can be chronic or, you know, like a short-term thing, like a wildfire could be a trauma um, or witnessing domestic abuse could be a trauma or, you know, how your body responds to it is also partly how it, defined, because if your nervous system goes into a stress response, you know, and it's a heightened stress response that doesn't go back to stable, then your body thinks you're experiencing a trauma. Um, You know, and it throws you into that fight, flight, or freeze mode, and just a very scared response. And kids who experience trauma, for the most part, 90% of them after six months to a year are going to be okay um, with loving support. Um, And then there's a small percent smaller percentage which is a massive number um, when you're talking about a global trauma that that won't do okay or need extra support but what i find interesting is right now people are talking about the pandemic as if it is a given that it's a trauma and it's a trauma for some people and it's absolutely not a trauma for others mm-hmm. and um, i think when we position it as a trauma it actually heightens parental stress because when you read about trauma, the part of it that is scary when you think about kids is if they're in a state of chronic stress where they don't get that, where their, their body doesn't release all of the stress response and go back to a state of uh, regulation, it can cause a lot of long-term problems. Like We know that kids who experience multiple traumas in childhood have health problems deep into adulthood, from diabetes to heart disease to uh, mental health problems. But um, those are kind of cumulative traumas. The thing that is scary for parents is hearing that this pandemic is a trauma for all kids and then having them think, oh, my God, my kid is going to you know, have this challenge that's going to make it so that they're more likely to experience all these negative effects. And I think that's only going to be true for some kids. Because it depends on the circumstances that you're in. For some kids, this is just an inconvenience. It's difficult. It's hard. But it's not an acute trauma.
1: Yeah. First of all, that feels good to hear that. Because I think you're right. We tend to just accept the word on the street that this is what's happening. And, and I, I have heard from a number of families within the community of differently wired parents that their kids are actually doing really well, because, you know, in some cases, school has been a trauma for them or bullying or, you know, being a social outcast and things like that. And so they are much more relaxed, actually, in a remote learning environment. And so if our child is one of those kids who is having more of a trauma response to this, what would that look like? So I've been reading more and more about the increasing number of kids who are being hospitalized, rises in suicidal ideation, rises in anxiety and depression. Are those symptoms of a traumatic response? Yeah, so those can be symptoms of a traumatic response. And it, and certainly if kids
0: are already experiencing difficulties, so you know, they're already depressed or anxious, or they have a learning difference that makes online learning really complicated for them. And parents or caregivers are also experiencing either because of part in part because of that or in part because of their own lack of social support, heightened stress, all of these things combined can make a kid more vulnerable to having a chronic stress response to what's happening right now. And you can see so so one of the things that it's so hard to say out loud because it sounds like it's imposing it on parents. And I, I definitely don't want that. But part of it is regulating parents, having parents really focus on taking care of themselves so that they can regulate themselves. So that one thing that supports kids, we know, in when they feel threatened, when they have, uh, like what's called either tolerable or toxic stress is that they can come out of it much better and in fact thrive as long as they have the loving support of a, of a caregiver, one one adult caregiver. And so that whole put your oxygen mask on first is not some luxury. It's the most important thing a parent can do is make sure that they're regulated and figuring out how to get through this time as best they can so that they can be available to support kids who are going through heightened stress. And th- so I, I don't say it to put pressure on parents. I say it to give permission to parents to take care of themselves.
1: Yeah. And I love that you're using the word regulating ourselves, because I, I always use that in regards to kids, right? Emotional regulation, regulation. But for parents... That is just as important. And I and I like turning it back on ourselves. I'm certainly a my listeners know this, I am 150% in on the self care and have been preaching that for months and months and months. But as you said, it's not a luxury. And, and it's something we really have to committed proactively doing on a daily basis, because things can change so much from day to day. Right. And, and if you think about it,
0: if they're changing so much from day to day for us, how much it feels even bigger for kids because Mm -hmm. no matter what your kid's brain is like or what your child's temperament is like, they have an easier time co-regulating when they have stability and predictability. And we have such uncertainty right now. It's just a recipe for everybody to be a mess um but not traumatized and i think that's the difference mm-hmm. mess is not a clinical word mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know it's it is dysregulating to have all these challenges and i think resilience we also misinterpret a little bit because resilience is really about it's not a personal attribute so there's all this accolades to someone who's been really hard and comes out the other side and we call them resilient and it's about their personal attributes and unfortunately, the flip side of it, there's a little bit of a, a blame if a kid isn't doing well in a stressed situation, because it's a process that encompasses positive adaptation in the context of adversity and setbacks and trauma and tragedy and any significant source of stress like a pandemic. But it's a process. And when you make it about a personal attribute, it is a little bit blamey. You know, and it doesn't take into account that there are a number of protective factors that go into that process. And some of them are personal attributes. So some of them are self-regulation skills. Some of them are about problem-solving skills and motivation and a sense of autonomy, a sense of purpose. But some of them are about having a caregiver that's steady and available. Some are about having close relationships and so, you know, a social network and support. And some are about effective schools and well-functioning communities. And that is not in the control of an individual child. So to attribute the resilience to an individual, that there are some individuals that are set up to be more resilient than others. Mm -hmm. society.
1: Yeah, that's really helpful. We'll be right back after this quick break. So in our house these days, Darren and I have been working together to up-level our nutrition and healthy lifestyle habits. Maybe it's our age, our changing bodies, my shifting hormones, whatever the reason, I'm here for it. And that's why I'm loving Green Chef, a meal company that makes eating well easy with plans to fit every lifestyle. Green Chef offers gut-friendly recipes each week and is committed to providing a holistic approach to nutrition by offering meals that contribute to the overall well-being of your entire body. That's 60% off plus 20% off your next two months when you use the code 60TILT at greenchef.com 60TILT. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. This year I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body. And so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at Ritual.com slash Tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's Ritual.com slash Tilt for 25% off. You know, I think especially for differently wired kids, there are books about this, you know, these kids are intense. They many of them are, you know, grumblers, they're glass half empty folks, not all of them, of course, but you know, many of them are wired to have like heightened negative self-talk or just this isn't kind of their default, I would say. And the way you just described that also, you know, so much of this is the executive function capacity they have. And, and I, and I think you're right. I think we often do feel like this is a lottery, right? That our kids have, have missed out on this, the resilience factor, the X factor that, that seems to be the key to fulfillment as an adult but there are so many pieces to it. So what can we as parents do besides making ourselves available and and showing up for our kids? How can we support them so that you know resilience is a process that they can engage in as we shift through this and hopefully soon move out of the pandemic. That
0: is the, the that's the big question and well first I'll tell you one of my mentors, Sunia Luther, she always says Decades of research, if you want to boil resilience down in decades of the research out there, resilience rests on relationships. So that being there for your kids and letting them know that you're available is not insignificant. It can make the difference between a kid who is going to be okay and a kid who can't do it, who's just not going to come out okay. So it's really important. And then I think parents can also work on building the same set of tools that a lot of your listeners are probably already working on. Like you said, those executive function skills, those skills that are housed in there, like self-regulation and problem solving and helping support autonomy in kids, helping give them purpose and helping support motivation and mindset. Those things are definitely teachable skills. They're just more challenging. For some, um, in in some ways, I do really feel like parents who've been hard at work all along helping kids with their executive function skills are at an advantage because they already know how important it is to be consistent and persistent about building those muscles. And they already kind of buy into the idea that these are muscles you can build. So it's just a matter of sticking with it through this very challenging time when it's even more, it's like more important, but harder to do. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, there are two things I, I did want to mention that some, and, and maybe that you've just had this conversation so much, but I think it's worth When people are thinking about how bad is this for kids or is this trauma, thinking about there's positive stress, tolerable stress, and toxic stress. And what we find is to make sure kids don't experience toxic stress because that's the stress that's chronic and you never come back down from it. And we know that chronic stress, as we talked about earlier, can lead to so many different health outcomes, poor health outcomes. But we also know that the knowledge that you have that stable relationship and that there's, you know, you've got that one person can move things that feel like chronic stress into more tolerable stress because we can get through it because we know that we've got this support system. And then positive stress is the thing that, again, I think your listeners know more and have have experienced more than others, which is that there's going to be wear and tear as part of our day-to-day experience as people. And if you never experience that, it's bad for kids. And I rarely say things are just bad. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But if kids don't know what it's like to experience distress at all, then they're in a very terrifying position to be out in the world. So that's sort of a separate thing. And then the other thing is, Working on those executive function skills. And you can do that in so many different ways, whether it's playing board games or making schedules or taking, you know, doing visual planning or sitting down and mapping out the week or playing Simon Says. There are so many different parts of executive function skills that you can exercise. Mm -hmm. You know, when you practice impulse control through musical chairs. You're self-regulating it's just you're you're going against what your body naturally wants to do
1: right well I really I appreciate the emphasis on relationships that is something also I've been really trying to encourage people to focus on you know as we think about our kids mental and emotional well-being as being the foundation for what we need right now. And I I love that. And just to be clear, it's not just the relationship that we as parents and caregivers have with our kids, but it could be an aunt or, you know, a close friend. It could be just making sure that they have connectedness with other people who really see them, right? That's exactly right. Connections build connection, brain connections.
0: Human connection build brain connections. Um, animal connections build brain connections. And Just knowing that someone's got you goes a long way. So parents don't need to to say the right thing. It's not like if your child comes to you with a problem, the healthy, positive relationship is the one where the parent always has the answer. It's that your kid knows they can come to you and you'll sit next to them while they cry. Or you'll say, can I get you a glass of water? You know, like that your child just knows you're there for the happy, for the sad, for the angry, for the whole gamut of feelings, and you're not going anywhere. And it doesn't mean that you'll be able to solve it. You're not going to be able to take away how hard this is for so many kids because it's impossible to. So it's it's the difference between knowing that when you, you're going through something, you're not alone. It, that's all it is. So it, it's not as big of an ask as it feels like. And it's not as much pressure on parents to get it right because just your physical presence. And sometimes, by the way, as you know, somebody might not want you next to them or touching them, but it's that you're there. It's just sometimes you have to be more of a cat than a, you know, a puppy.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um,
0: so I think that that is so, so much more powerful, especially as kids get older than we realize. And then I think separately, promoting autonomy is super important. And it's, again, a little bit more challenging when your child needs more support to get from, you know, A to B to C to D, but everybody can have more autonomy within the context of what they're capable of.
1: Yeah, that's great. I love that. It's something I've been thinking about that exact thing, too, because I know that, there are a lot of parents who are ramping up the expectations on their child working on those independent skills and and autonomy, maybe doing laundry or whatever it is. And our kids may need more support because they're less motivated. And it's kind of like a fine tightrope, I think, that we're constantly walking along. And but those I, I agree, like that sense of autonomy and that sense of having some control over some aspect of your life we know is so important for kids to have especially at a time now when none of us feel like we have a lot of control.
0: Uh, yes, it's such a good point. Like we don't have any we it's so hard for us because it feels like there's so little that you can hold grab onto. I mean, my kids were asking me, one of my daughters is having a birthday in 10 days and I said to her What do you want to eat? (laughs) I can't think of anything I can provide other than the meal that she's probably looking forward to because she can't see anybody. Right? She has school that day. So there's not even much we can do during the day. And we're on lockdown. So I said, well, you can pick what you're eating and what you're wearing. And I said, maybe we should do like, this year should be an acknowledgement we're going to do half birthdays. So we could do um, June and do a real celebration. And she said to me, you don't know that we're going to be done with this in June.
1: <laughs> <laughs> She's a realist. She's a realist. <laughs> and I said sent
0: to her last June because we actually do do half birthdays in our house anyway, because I'm a little bit like up for any excuse to do anything weird. My mom did it. She was a teacher and she was like, gave, you know, half a cupcake and half of everything. And she thought that was so fun. And then no matter how corny I thought it was, here I am all these years later doing the same thing. But um, she said, you told me in June, you know, by the time we get to your birthday, we'll be able to have an actual birthday party. Anyway, she was like, mm, why don't you, <laughs> when do you stop predicting? Um, so I think we really have uh, no sense of anything that we have clarity and control over except ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so finding those moments for our kids to decide even what they, you know, like picking something they can have control over is so powerful for them.
1: We'll be right back after this quick break. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, The opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything, because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this.
0: let us help you get back to your best creative self. Look for Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Wherever you listen to podcasts starting in January, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Because sometimes
1: life sucks. So, well, this has to do kind of with what you were, were saying about predicting. I'm not going to ask you for your predictions, but certainly I feel like you know, there's much more conversation surrounding that this is going to end, you know, we know that there are vaccinations that are going to be rolled out, hopefully soon. And um, people are starting to think at a certain point, maybe the next six, nine, 12 months, we're going to be resuming some semblance of normalcy. And I think initially, I thought that, you know, once things go back to quote, unquote, normal, then we'll all just bounce back. And I just this week, I'm like, that is ridiculous that I'm thinking that. And I'm just wondering if you have a sense of what we might expect to see in our kids. As we kind of return, I imagine there's going to be like a recovery period, or an expanded transition that is going to be tricky.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be a new separation, new experiences of remembering that you're capable of doing certain things that you couldn't do before. And For those kids who've really lost social interactions in a way that they needed them to practice their social interactions, they're going to have some, there's going to be wear and tear. Um, I think talking to kids to the extent that you can about what challenges lie ahead and what parts of the pandemic life they want to cling to is nice because it gives you a little bit of a, a realistic appraisal of things because we know that. Realistic appraisals of things is another characteristic of resilience, but it gives you also a positive, like something to think, well, what can I, what, what can I hold on to that I really liked about our schedule or our life during this time? And what do I, what am I so excited to go back for? And then just helping set expectations for kids who might not remember. I mean, their lives are, this was a long chunk of their lives. So they might not remember what it was like to have a school day or what it was like to um, have you leave for work or just certain things that might cause some dysregulation. And so letting them know that's okay. This is going to be, you know, we're all going to be getting used to it and it's going to feel a little uncomfortable and that's okay. Because one thing that we all feel uncomfortable with is our kids' discomfort But the message when you feel uncomfortable when your child is dysregulated is that there's something wrong with it and there's nothing wrong with it. We're all going to go through that. So just letting them know that we have certain things that might be a little extra challenging and that it's okay that they might be feeling different feelings. And I think sharing with them that they they might have mixed feelings and teaching kids what mixed feelings are. You know, you can have two very uh, seemingly opposite feelings and have space for both of those. And recognizing as part of self-regulation, and this is a little, um, I think it's stolen probably originally from Buddhism, but I like to think of it scientifically, which Mm -hmm. is that, you know, when things are totally certain, there are no possibilities. But when things are uncertain, yes, it's scary. And yes, it's going to be very different than what we maybe expected. And the real going out into whatever the new normal is might be uncertain and scary, but it also opens up possibilities. And there's a lot of positive impossibilities. So just reframing, not to dishonor the fact that kids might be anxious about the uncertainty, but just to also Mention the possibility that there's just a wide open space of what's it going to be like. And I think that we know, again, going back to resilience, that kids who can hunt for the good stuff, especially kids that we know need extra training in that because they typically bend more pessimistic, to find those, that habit of, well, let's still search for three possibilities in this uncertainty that would be a good thing. Doesn't mean they're going to happen, but they open the possibility. It's like, That's a possibility. And I think that's a really important way to reframe while still saying, like, this other stuff is going to suck, and that's totally fine too. Like, you can have both, you can have hope and um, a desire and confidence that there's a potential for good stuff, and also be really bummed out about all the hard stuff.
1: Mm -hmm. That's great. Well, this has been really insightful and has left me feeling a little more prepared and maybe even a little more optimistic. So thank you for that. Would you just take a minute to tell listeners where they can check out your podcast and connect with you on social media and anywhere else you want them to?
0: Sure, and thank you so much because sometimes talking through this stuff is just, yeah, it's, it's a reminder that we have to talk about this stuff because we're all sitting here going, what is going to happen? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I am on anywhere where you get podcasts, Uh, at Raising Good Humans Podcast. And then I'm on Instagram on at Raising Good Humans Podcast. And you can just DM me there for questions. And I, I will try to respond as much as I can.
1: Awesome. So thank you so much for joining us today, Elisa. Again, super insightful, interesting conversation. And it was great to have you on the show. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. For the show notes for this episode, visit TiltParenting.com slash podcast and search for this conversation. If you like what you heard on today's episode, I would be grateful if you could take a minute to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a review. Thank you so much for helping us stay visible so people who would benefit from the show can easily find it. If you want to support the show and help me cover the cost of production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. To support the show, just visit patreon.com/tiltparenting. Lastly, if you aren't already part of the online community at Tilt, I invite you to sign up at tiltparenting.com on the box in the bottom where it says "Join the Revolution." Every Thursday, I send out a short email with a quick note from me, a link to that week's podcast episode, and links to five stories from the news that week that are relevant to parents like us. Again, you can sign up and learn more about Tilt at www.TiltParenting.com. Feel like you're the martyr in your family? You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Bree, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it,